How did the Egyptians know technologically advanced archaeology and architecture? How did the Amazonians know biology, chemistry? How did the Dogon know the planets and Sirius and the stars? These are the questions we have been discussing as we follow the teaching, the book, and the information we found in the Stargate Conspiracy together. This is the third and final installment on some of the teaching that we've been doing and questions we've been discussing. And we're glad to have you tune into the Soul Trap as we wrap this little part of our journey up. We ended really eyeball deep in the subject of shamanism. That it is the Egyptians not contacting alien astronauts, but the Egyptians contacting the other side by way of shamanism. And the ultimate question, I suppose, is, has that gone away or is it still going on today, somewhere, somehow, within our texture, te technological context in which we are in, are there people, leaders, churches, academia, you name it, still in contact, still reaching across the veil, still advancing humanity, while at the same time paying the price with humanity's soul? In the book, The Stargate Conspiracy, written by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince, I urge you, encourage you to get it and read it yourself. It's a rather lengthy book, and yet it's well worth the read. We pick up reading on page 351, stating, In our opinion, Jeremy Narby's groundbreaking work on shamanism has important implications for some of the recent theories concerning the origins of Egyptian wisdom, particularly those of the ancient astronaut school. And we left off there, but I think it's worth backing up and rereading again. Proponents of such hypotheses, such as Alan Alford, tend to treat the myths and religious writings, such as the pyramid texts, in an excessively literal way. When the ancients tell us of meetings with partic particular animals and part animal, part man entities who descend to earth or to whom the priest ascends and who impart specific information, such researchers assume these to be garbled stories of actual meetings with exotic beings from outer space, making gods astronauts. Shamans living in the Amazonian rainforest, however, today regularly describe these identical experiences, sometimes under the watchful gaze of anthropologists, without the least suggestion of descending spaceships or visitors from a lost continent. But as we left off, we come back to the question, who are the entities from whom the shamans have always received their invaluable knowledge? It is possible, the writers state, that we will never be able to answer the question fully. Well, that's because they're not Bible believers. It is possible that we will never be able to answer the question fully. Even shamans know that some mysteries and secrets are never meant to be understood. But once again, the work of Jeremy Narby may provide certain exciting clues about what it is that shamans, from ancient Egyptians to today, tap into when they enter their exalted state of consciousness. Narby noted that the visions of shamans across the world shared certain key images, the most fundamental being that of twin serpents that live inside every creature. The penny finally dropped for him when he read about Michael Harner's experience in 1961. He saw winged 
dragon-like creatures. We would call them in the Bible cockatrices. Winged dragon-like creatures who explained to him that they had created life on the planet in order to hide within the multitudinous forms. I learned that the dragon-like creatures were thus inside all forms of life, including man. Watch it now. Exactly what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Exactly what is wrong with our blood. Hmm. Harner himself wrote that one could say they were almost like DNA, but added that he had no idea where the vision came from, certainly not from his own mind, as at the time he knew nothing about DNA. Whatever the origin of the words, this was to be a major inspiration. Narby realized that the image of serpents living inside every living thing is, in fact, an excellent description of the strands of DNA, and one might even say of the doctrine of the serpent seed. Shamans ascribed the source of their remarkable knowledge to these twin serpents, like the two Narby himself encountered. Could it be that the, quote, primitive belief that all living things are animated by the same single principle described, described in this ubiquitous serpentine imagery is actually correct, and that what it has always described is actually DNA? Narby cites numerous examples from ancient myths and the shamanistic lore of primitive cultures from Peru to Australia to support his superb connection between the serpents and DNA. The shamans insist that the serpents possess consciousness and that they enter into a real dialogue with them. If the shamans are in reality somehow communicating with DNA, the implication is that it must be intelligent. The DNA of the Ayahuasca plants, for example, must know its own properties, but will only impart them to the shaman in answer to specific questions. This means that the DNA has to understand the question and be able to communicate with the shaman's own DNA. Can the DNA of one individual living creature really communicate with that of another? Norby's theory still has a long way to go. For example, it is hard to see how intelligent DNA can explain the knowledge of the shamans receive about specific techniques, such as weaving or mixing curare. The important achievement is that he has shown that shamans derive unusual and usable information by mental contact with some non-human source, and they do appear to be in touch with the quote-unquote gods, or at least some strange beings who exist in another dimension and share their undoubted powers with them. Another very significant aspect of Narby's research is his identification of a common feature throughout the shamanistic cultures and ancient myths for that matter. Divine twins as the bringers of wisdom, the theme of double beings of celestial origin and creators of life. He points out that, for example, quoting from Claude Levi Strauss, that Aztec word coalto, as in the name Quetzalcoatl, means both snake and twin. The word can also be interpreted as either feathered serpent or magnificent twin. Narby believes that the twin serpents so often encountered during shamanistic flights, and which he himself experienced, represents the two strands of the double helix DNA. This reminds us of the two sets of twins in the Heliopolitian religion, Isis, Osiris, Nephis, and Set, as well as the Nomo of the Dogon, as described in 
the book of the serious mystery, who are also made up of sets of twins descend to the earth and then civilize mankind. Again, Narby's shamanic theory provide an eloquent and, in our view, much more plausible alternative to the ubiquitous ancient astronaut explanation for these myths. Perhaps DNA has other secrets to impart. The genetic code in the human genome is made up of just 3% of its total DNA. The function of the rest is unknown and is officially termed junk DNA. Narby suggests that a better term would be mystery DNA. How many miracles and how much potential does the other 97% encompass? And as we digress from the book for a second, one has to ask themselves with transhumanism, with the mark of the beast, we have to wonder if the powers of darkness after the rapture are going to have access to that other 97%. Uh, we don't want to digress too far, but it's at least worth the thought. The book goes on to say, Narby's ideas about DNA and shamanism throw a completely new light on hitherto intractable historical mysteries. Were, for instance, the outline drawings of animals and birds on the sands of Nazca in Peru meant to be guides to and celebrations of the shaman's flight? Did the Dogon discover the secrets of Sirius simply by asking their shaman spirit guides? Were the massive stone blocks that make up the giant pyramids of Egypt maneuvered into place according to the advice of the gods visited by their priests in a trance? Significantly, the flight of the shaman also enabled him to visit, visit far distant places and later describe what he saw and heard. In other words, remote viewing. This aspect of shamanism particularly intrigued anthropologist Kenneth Kinziger, who tested it among the Ayaharashras of the Amazon and found that they were able to, quote, bring back accurate information about distant places, as well as tell him about the death of a relative before he heard about it himself, a la the men who stare at goats, Project Monarch, and on and on and on. We asked, the writer states, we asked Jeremy Narby if he agreed with us that his ideas could account for the extraordinary knowledge implicit in the building of the pyramids. He pointed out that the Aztecs, Incas, and Maya had constructed comparable temples and that the double serpent, or whatever figure you take depending on the culture, teaches about curing, healing plants, but also about astronomy, building techniques, technology, arts and crafts in general. Narby was cautious about stepping outside his field of specialism. But was there really an ancient Egyptian equivalent of Ayahuasca? If so, what was it? Well, there is such a thing called the sacred weed. The sacred weed, a very rare plant that was used both recreationally and ritually by the ancient Egyptians. It is frequently depicted in wall paintings and papyri and even forms the design of the pillars of the great temple of Karnak. Egyptianologists believe it to have been merely decorative, but the, pomegran uh, but the program set out to determine if it had psychoactive effects, which may well have been exploited in ancient Egypt. Interesting, the lily was specifically associated with Ra Atam. Seeing the way the plant flowers, shooting a long stem out of the water, which then bursts into an open flower, it is easy to see the symbolic association with Atom's bursting forth 
from the primal waters. As tested on two volunteers, an extract, an extract from the blue lily proved to have the suspected narcotic effect. Toward the end of the program, historian Michael Carmichael, an American living in Oxford who is a specialist in the shamanic use of psychoactive plants, discussed the possibility that in higher doses it could be used to induce shamanic experiences. We, the authors of the book, contacted Carmichael, who worked with R. Gordon Wasson, one of the pioneers of the research into some shamanic use of drugs. He told us that there is an abundant evidence for the use of psychoactive drugs in ancient Egypt, saying that there are so many that I don't know where to begin. Several are mentioned in the Iberus Papyrus, the oldest known medical text in the world. They are known to have included opium, mandrake, cannabis. You might check that word mandrake in your, New Test in your Old Testament. The psychoactive substances used by ancient cultures include Egypt, have been studied by several researchers. Little, if anything, of this has found its way into the Egyptology literature because of its characteristic extreme conservatism. Several other scientists and researchers have studied the shamanic practices of ancient Egypt and their use of psychoactive drugs. They include Benny Shannon, a cognitive psychologist and philosopher at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Carmichael agreed emphatically with Narby's observation that useful information can be gained by shamans in their ecstatic state from communion with what he termed as otherworldly entities. He told us, quote, these substances are used as vehicles to expedite shamanistic performance in that the shaman is able to elevate his consciousness to a new level whereby he can experience nature at a much more astute, acute, and engaged level than in the normal case with human perception. He is then able to witness natural phenomenon, which other people are not able to witness in normal states of consciousness. This is what gives him his deeper and more profound insights into nature and the world. But now the question is, what are the entities? Are they real? Or elaborate constructs of the shaman's mind? Dr. Carmyle pointed out that this question involved the whole philosophical and metaphysical argument about the nature of reality itself, and was probably unanswerable, again, only to him who doesn't have a King James Bible in front of him. Now, the writers suggest, they state this way, we suggest that one test of the reality of the shaman's experience was whether the knowledge he acquired actually worked, which, as we have seen, it most assuredly does. Carmichael, therefore, agreed. Turning to the question of the inexplicable knowledge of the ancient Egyptians, Dr. Carmichael, who was well acquainted with the ideas of the new Egyptology, told us, my own belief is that at this point in time is that the pyramids were not built by a spacefaring race that came from a Martian colony. I see no evidence for that whatsoever. While it's unsound of modern Egyptologists to presume that plants and other substances were used of the ancient Egyptians in sacred contexts solely for their decorative or their aesthetic properties, it would be just as unsound for us to believe that they had to build the pyramids in exactly the way that we suppose that they would have built them. It might not have been slaves and whips, nor may it necessarily have been through some sort of acoustic levitational technology. It may have been some other way. There may be a technology between those extremes. Shamanistic experience could well have been the door, the gate, 
the Hydron Collider. Oops, I inserted that in. The Stargate through which the ancient Egyptian architects and engineers were able to achieve that technology. So what are the entities? And this brings us back to our opening statement. Nature spirits, the gods, a dramatization from the shaman's subconscious mind somehow personifying information picked up by ESP or even DNA? Or could the shaman really be in contact with beings on some far-off world? Jeremy Narvey told us, quote, I guess this is what your average Amazonian shaman would testify, traveling in his mind to another planet. He referred to the paintings of, the, of an Amazonian shaman by the name of Pablo Emeringo, who depicts the things he sees under the influence of the drug, saying, different plants contain different molecules, and they set off different kinds of visions. There are even different kinds of ayahuascas, some of which are a lot more organic and make you see things about nature on earth, whereas others will make you see things like distant worlds with cities and so forth. In Pablo Amaringo's paintings, you get a bit of both. If you look at the paintings of the distant cities, because this is one of the common themes that come up in the literature, distant cities with hyper-sophisticated technology and so on, they're filled with pyramids, Babel towers, and minarets. Hmm. Now let me pause for a second. Satan is the god of this world and the imitator of God. God wanted the tabernacle built in a fashion that reflected the heavenly tabernacle. Could it be that some of these great buildings, under the influence of the small g God of this world, are, albeit crude, yet true reflections of the heavenly city of God? Or the ancient cities that Satan once ruled as Lucifer before his fall? Hmm. The book goes on to say, Although such scenes and entities may well not originate from another planet, no one has all the answers. It will probably turn out to have much more complex and stranger explanations than a straightforward extraterrestrial hypothesis. But it may be significant that Whitley Strieber has described similar visions of golden cities and exotic otherworldly structures. Similarly, the space kids, while in hypnotic trance induced by Puharic, also describe alien cities. Does this imply that their experience were basically shamanic? And at least in the case of the space kids, was it the result of a deliberate experiment to induce shamanic experiences? On the other hand, could the shamanic experiences really be of extraterrestrial origin? Or is such a question meaningless? Narby states, quote, The Western world that has started to rediscover all these old out-of-body experiences is glued down in a kind of 50s technovision that seems like kindergarten. When you spent time with Amazonian shamans, they seem like university professors compared to kindergartners. The old texts... Describe them as spirits from the sky. I like the sound of that more than extraterrestrial intelligence because the latter has all that kind of 50s baggage that isn't necessary. Spirits from the sky sounds beautiful. Not everything in the shamanic experience is beautiful, though. Narby does give this warning, quote, Not all spirits are friendly 
and benevolent. One can make parallels with biology quite simply. In other words, there are organisms that impart health, happiness, and food to the human species, and there are others like HIV virus, for instance, that break into the immune system and screw us up. Even highly trained shamanistic initiates can encounter not just evil, but also trickster spirits. Perhaps this should be a warning to those amateurs who believe that they are in touch with the gods. The evidence of shamans and mystics suggests strongly that there is a stargate, and it is possible for individuals to step through into a magical other world. But it is not a physical device like the rippling vortex machine of the movie. Just as Michael Horner's internal journey brought him face-to-face with animal-headed gods so reminiscent of the ancient Egyptian deities, so it seems each of us already possess the means to meet the gods. Well, of course we do, according to Ephesians 2. The spirit. What is that spirit? The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Perhaps this is what some of the ancients the much later initiatives of the old initiates of the old mystery schools meant when they taught that man is a microcosm of the whole universe. It is interesting that Dale E. Gaff, Graff, the man who was not only director of the U.S. Army's remote viewing Stargate project, did you catch that? The Army's remote viewing was called the Stargate project, but also chose its highly evocative name, He wrote the following, Stars send faint light from a cosmic distance. They may forever remain out of reach, but not the stargate within. Our inner stargate can be found by anyone who chooses to search. No teacher, priest, or guru can locate the stargate for us, so our quest for it and its mysteries, if we care to look for it, may be long and hard. The problem is that many find it easier to listen to those who promise to deliver the Stargate already neatly packaged and temptingly ajar, and to invite mighty, ineffable being to step through to inspire us with awe, enliven our dull existence, and make us feel special, chosen, until we realize that in coming through they have slammed shut the ultimate prison door through which there is no escape. The beings who come as gods may not exist beyond top-secret rooms inside government buildings, or in the fevered imaginations of channelers and remote viewers. But even if they do come from distant star systems, we have a right to defend our minds against what is dangerous and corrupt. If we are right, then this warning does not come a moment too soon. If we are wrong, then we still have time to learn to be proud of our humanity and find the Stargate for ourselves. I want to encourage you to get this book. Read it. Study it. But what an interesting theory. Was it alien astronauts? Was it physical beings here on this earth? Or was it a third way? Was it real Egyptian shamans in touch with real Egyptian gods? through shamanistic mechanisms that produce that. As always, our study at the end of the day is to prove that God's word is true. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. And so we end by reminding you that when the Apostle Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, a spiritual array of beings, you may well take that to the bank.
Ladies and gentlemen, the spirit world is not an unreal world. It is another dimension outside of our perception, outside of our ability to wrap our mind around. But it is there. It is real. And soon, very soon, the trumpet will sound. The archangel's voice will echo across the distant sky. And that veil between our world and the next, that veil that now can only be bridged by way of shamanism and prescription medication and alteration, that veil will be torn down and we will be face to face with what we have only until now taken by faith. God bless you.